Welcome, everybody, back to another Adventures in DevOps episode here on the DevChat TV network. And I'll be your host this week, Tyler Bird. I work at SunGage Learning as a senior DevOps engineer person. You know, titles don't necessarily mean everything, but I've been around a bit and doing stuff for SunGage Learning. We're getting prepared for the, the big rush of online learning here in this fall because of COVID season. So doing lots of great things out there. And and with me this week is JJ Asgar from IBM. Hello, JJ. Can you introduce yourself to the listeners? Yeah, th- thanks, Tyler. My name is JJ Asgar, as, as you said. I'm a developer advocate for the IBM cloud, and I've been in the DevOps ecosystem since at least 2011, believe it or not. I actually have a t-shirt that says DevOps from 2011. And I think it's officially started, the whole movement started in 2009. So I feel like I'm a, I'm an old hat at this. And nice little tidbit of information. If, if you know anything about IBM, the one thing IBMers have are really, really, really lame email addresses because they get stuck with you for your whole life. Well, I have the email address, and this is no joke, of awesome at IBM.com. Oh, nice. Yeah. Like that's spelled A-W-S-M or, the, I mean, do we want to give it, give it no, out? Or? Yeah, no. My, my job as a developer advocate is I'm supposed to be accessible to the developer community. So yes, please, if, you, if I can ever help you in any way whatsoever, awesome, A-W-E-S-O-M at IBM.com and you get directly to me. Back when functional programming was making its resurgence, I found it really interesting that a lot of people were moving over there and it almost felt like it was on hype. And I didn't really understand the power of functional programming until I learned Elixir. Elixir is a functional programming language. It's built on the Erlang virtual machine. And it really does some interesting things and makes you build apps in a different way. But what's really fascinating about it is the speed of the applications, the ability to distribute work easily, and just how it manages the functional programming and all of the nice things about it so that you don't have to worry about side effects and a lot of the other things that come out of functional programming. Plus, pattern matching in Elixir is a killer feature. If you're looking for a new language that you want to learn that is going to make a difference for you, and give you the opportunity to challenge some of your thinking and find a new way of doing it, Elixir is a great way to go. And we have a podcast now on Elixir called Elixir Mix. And you can find that at elixirmix.com. Wow, that's that's a really coveted email address. So basically, did you get to choose that when you showed up? Or how did that come about? Well, this is something hopefully that uh, some people who are coming up through the industry or in general, one beautiful thing about corporations is that there's always paperwork somewhere. So if you can find the right paperwork, it's amazing what you can get away with. And one of what they gave me what's called a, a W3 ID internally at IBM, which was JJA. And I was like, nobody knows me as JJA. I need JJ because everybody knows me online as JJ or JJ Asgar is my, my full name on like GitHub or whatever. And they're like, so can I have like JJ at IBM? And they're like, sorry, sir, we can't do that. And I'm like, why not? Lotus Notes. And I'm like, what? Yeah, Lotus mm-hmm. Notes requires at least a three character email address. And I was like, okay, no, like I, I, I'm a public figure. People need to get a hold of me. So I need aliases. I need to change. I need something to like advertise this. They're like, well, if you fill out this paperwork over here, you can get the aliases you want up to five. I'm like, okay, well, I put JJ Asgard. I put all the different aliases in. I had the last one and I was like, well, oh, why not? I'll try awesome. So I tried awesome and no joke, uh, a little window popped up and it said, please put a business reason why you like this email address. And I was, I literally put down 
because I'm awesome, submit. And 24 hours later, I got it. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that works. <laughs> you know, sometimes the truth is is out there, right? And uh, yep. yeah, so that's a really great story. I appreciate you sharing that with us. It is it is important, like in every industry, and but I think also especially in the DevOps industry, mm-hmm. to never look at things at the surface level, right? And because there's so much complexity, we try to break it down to that surface level, but we actually have to always keep asking like the five whys or we have to keep digging. Mm-hmm. So I like how you, you kept asking, you know, to try and figure out more information there to get a little bit deeper and see what the options were. And so that's, it's a great technique for everyone, regardless of whether or not they're in DevOps or not. And so how long have you been at IBM? Uh, actually, I've, I've just reached two years. Before that, I was at a software company called Chef Software, which was arguably one of the major DevOps tool tooling out there. I, I'm kind of, I have feelings about the concept of calling something DevOps tooling, but that's a different conversation. And a lot of people look at me really weirdly when I said I was employee 75 at Chef. So I started really early on and Chef paid me to work for them. And then I stayed there about five years and then I moved on to IBM, which that's, that's a different conversation too. But I kind of wanted to co- go back to something you just mentioned a moment ago, which was the DevOps mentality, right? Of the five whys and things like that. Something that at least I learned as a DevOps practitioner, when I say DevOps practitioner, first of all, that to, to me, that that is iterative, right? Like the concept of being a true good DevOps engineer is you're willing to fail fast and iterate, right? You're willing to use technology to its advantage, but you don't fall in love with the tools. Yes, you have a tool chest, if you will, but you don't fall, you, you, you are willing to iterate on those toolings, the different tools to do your job. And you're willing to experiment. You're willing to look at a problem in multiple different ways and be able to kind of just process what's happening. One of my, my best stories when I was a quote unquote senior DevOps engineer before becoming a BD person, which that's a different conversation, was I actually had at this one startup company here in Austin, Texas, where it was a rail shop. It was all ran on a an OpenStack cloud. And I can talk about I can talk to you about OpenStack for hours. But the the core of the thing was it was a there there was two conflicting mentalities. I was a quote unquote DevOps engineer. I my the person to my left literally sitting to my left was a system administrator and we reported to a director who was an old school like sysadmin that he basically had uh, when he was coming up in his career he had one or two computers he, he took care of right unlike nowadays where devops engineers can take care of thousands of computers or hundreds of thousands of possible containers which are in essence computers but you get my point so the, the inflection point of what i was responsible for and what he kind of understood he didn't understand what devops was and the reason why i bring this up is the the conversations I used to have with him kind of he always was he didn't believe in automation he he wanted to SSH into every single machine and kick the passenger process because it was a rail shop we ran passenger at the time like I was like well why don't we just write a script that goes in and does it for us this is before Ansible happened but the, the point being is that there was something that could own the passenger process and I'll be like I can just kick everything programmatically and then we can call it a day no he wanted me to you know be up at three in the morning and kick the process because that's when we saw the lowest amount of traffic. It it was a really weird kind of duality where I was trying to make my life better by letting the bots do the work for me and have that iterative fail fast mentality with DevOps movement. And he was the old school 
sysadmin that wanted to kick the Java server, right? And it, it taught me a lot about how to teach people the paradigm switch that's required. And a lot of people who come out of the in, or into this industry or into this ecosystem out of school or who have been at major corporations and, and haven't had the opportunity to fail fast and take experimentation, it forces it forces conversations that are usually somewhat uncomfortable, but at the same time, empowering. I, that was very rambly, but did, did that make sense? Yeah, I think unpacking a lot of that, though, is, is really, really awesome. There's a lot of great stuff in there. Number one, there's the idea that we shouldn't fear change, right? Yes. As you mentioned, the tools themselves or even the techniques need to be adaptable. If we need to turn this Phillips head screwdriver into a flathead, then let's change it. And we'll get another Phillips another time or we'll make sure we buy both. Or anyway, getting too literal into the tool metaphor there. <laughs> but my point is that being flexible is important. And as you, as you illustrated through that story, we have the person who didn't want to change was happy with their situation and how it worked. And I think that Perhaps with those type of people, even the change, the, the thing we want to do has to be done in an iterative way, right? Mm -hmm. If it's going to happen. But I watched I watched some YouTube videos recently talking about like cognitive dissonance and belief, some psychological stuff that basically says that if we, you know, fake it till you make it kind of mm -hmm. thing where your, your brain is like, I need to stop trying to tell myself that I'm tired. I'm doing great. Everything's good. You know, willing yourself to be better. And then eventually your brain will start to recalibrate itself. Mm -hmm. Well, sometimes there are people who are kind of locked in to what they're doing and they don't create any of that dissonance and so they don't change. And mm -hmm. so we have to first create the cognitive dissonance and say, you know what, you could sleep at all night. You know, to me, it's like you said, one of the goals or the, not necessarily the goals, but one of the best side effects of learning how to use DevOps techniques better is that you can sleep at night, right? <laughs> it's true. So, so true. And that's, that's my, that's my litmus test for, for any tool that I start to look at night now is will this wake me up or will mm -hmm. this automate the things that are low level? log alert me you know put it in my inbox so i can get it at 8 a.m rather than 3 a.m yes. like you said sure. yep so so i definitely agree with a lot of what you're saying there and you know as, as you mentioned you worked you've worked in the industry for quite a while now what are some of the challenges of of what you're doing right now with ibm do you guys mostly tackle things within an ibm culture or do you do it externally what, what is your role in that yes yeah, great question so my role as a developer advocate is i am supposed to be a touch point for engineers to see ibm in a different way i being that i was so involved in the devops community communities around the world i've spoken at multiple devops days all over the planet i've gone i've spoken at VMworld multiple times and things like that, where I've always had a, a DevOps kink to everything I've talked about, in essence, automation. And as a touch point, and as that, IBM likes to send me out, well, in the before times, IBM liked to send me out to different places because I was able to represent IBM in a way that most people don't see IBM as. Because honestly, when you think of IBM, and hopefully I don't get in too much trouble for saying this, people think of like the IBM corporate song, right? IBM actually has a song that in the 1960s, 60s, I believe it was, uh, you were required to sing, right? Like that's what people see IBM as, not as a, a developer advocate like myself, who is there to engage with you and 
and learn from your experiences as an engineer, as a developer, so we can figure out a way that I can offer you something to be successful. Now, there was one thing that a moment ago that I'd like to kind of circle back on, and this is kind of a question to you, Tyler, and kind of curious to where you come from here. Where does, like, where in your mind as a DevOps practitioner, where does observability come in? Where should you say, okay, I'm responsible for N number of machines. I need to know what's going on. What would be the first thing that you would do to get observability and situational awareness as a DevOps practitioner? Yeah, that's a good question. Can I further refine it? Sure. How many, can we put a scale on it is what I'm saying. Mm. Am I... Am I one person at a company that's growing and has hired their first DevOps person, or, or am I part of a DevOps team? Let's start with just you are the you you are now the throat to choke that something goes wrong. Let's start there. Right. Okay. Let's start with that, and let's say that these guys have scaled up to a few hundred machines, right? Okay. With potentially thousands of containers and our previous metaphor. Yeah. That. That's a really great question. As far as observability goes, what I would want to understand is what do we already have and okay. then what do we need? And as I mentioned before, to kind of use myself as a cheat here is what's the dissonance between that? I studied film in, in school and one of my papers that I really enjoyed writing was about Chuck Jones, the animator. Right. So right. did all the lot of Bugs Bunny and stuff. Well, yeah. he wouldn't write every he wouldn't draw every single frame. He would draw like the major poses and then they'd have tweeners who would draw the in-between frames. And mm. so what I'm saying is, is that, you know, we not got to know where you are before you can go to the next place. Mm -hmm. So where are we starting? So that's, that's, I've found within almost all of my DevOps practices is doing some sort of audit first, not only if you're mm -hmm. like the new person coming onto a team, but also if you are newly appointed, like as the throat to choke, you've got to know where you're beginning. There's there's a new thing that we're working on at work that's, you know, not to get into any sort of like NDA type of stuff. We're trying to work on some auth authorization and role-based access type of stuff wow. for people because <laughs> we, have, we have a pipeline tool that right now is used for one team. And when you have one mm -hmm. team, you can get away with, you know, one password mm -hmm. uh, that everyone shares, especially if it's only four people on a team, right? Mm -hmm. It's not mm -hmm. the best thing in the world, but at least it's operational for now, right? But mm -hmm. when you start to onboard other teams, you then have to start scaling that out and, and looking at how you make it so that that team over there can't erase your secrets over here. And so, yeah, it, what we're doing right now is we're, it's not necessarily, it's probably before requirements gathering of where we want to go. It's its almost archaeology of where yes. are we now, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So that that would be what I, I mean, those are the some of the things that come to mind when I, when you ask me, where would I start with observability? I mean, we could start going into other directions and that kind of stuff about specifics of observability, like logs or metrics or that kind of stuff and tools. But in the more generic, that's that's kind of how I would jump into it. Cool. Just to play off of that a little bit, the one of the things I tell companies when I when I come in as a DevOps practitioner and they're asking, so JJ, what do now kind of thing? The first thing I say is I actually reference a portion of the Phoenix Project, uh, which is if you if hopefully you mentioned the Phoenix Project on this, this podcast before mm -hmm. in the follow up book of the the Unicorn Project, but there's one scene or portion of the Phoenix Project which really hit home for me to kind of explain 
explain why where you should think about automation and it goes to the observability uh, mention which is there's a moment that bill writes down every single step that it was required for him to get a laptop if i'm correctly on post-it notes and then put it on a wall right and he was like i had to do this i had to do that i had to go over here i had to do this and there was this moment where when he's describing this it really resonated with me because all of a sudden when i started talking to other companies i was like this this little this little microcosm of him trying to get a laptop was like 30 steps, right? Now imagine you and I'll have some other task that you need to do for your job. Let's just take, for instance, I, I love using the simple example of SSH keys, right? Where everyone's going to need SSH keys across your whole fleet. You, yes. Okay. In the DevOps, like ephemeral way, you should never SSH into anything. I get it. Yes. I understand that. But you are going to deploy SSH keys everywhere because you never know when you need to touch a machine, right? Well, how hard is is how hard is it for you to get an SSH key from a new hire onto the dev environment, QA environment, and production environment? First of all, should they even be getting to the production environment, right? And what's required to get to that point? Now, if you put that up on the wall and actually look at all the places that you have to touch and interface with, you should be able to map out where you can let automation, for instance, Chef in this case, when I usually have this conversation, could actually do this for you, where you'll be like, oh, wait a second. So first of all, I can have a, a cookbook and three different versions of cookbooks. I have a dev cookbook for SSH keys, QA cookbook for SSH keys, and prod that only my production level people, especially with like, what's it called? Separation of duties, where you have all that stuff put together. And then all of a sudden, when a new machine spins up, they, they get their SSH key immediately enabled onto that machine. Now imagine all the work you had to do to get to that point and automation, because they put that PR in with that public key for SSH in the GitHub repo that has the cookbook or whatever. Now they put a PR in and everything's taken care of for them. Now I realize I jumped around a little bit there, but hopefully that kind of sees that whole picture where when you have your your, your, your situational awareness, your observability of your, your infrastructure and your environment, question mark. And then when you can visualize different portions of it, you can start peeling away things. And the funny part is, it's the exact same story when you start talking to people about breaking up monolith applications into cloud native applications. It's it's just, it's not physical, like playing around with VMs to turn them into, to do things on VMs. It's the same narrative, just with the variable switched out of monolith application to cloud native container microservice applications. Isn't that crazy? One of my favorite communities in programming these days is the Angular community. Every time I go to an Angular conference or meet up with some of my friends who are in the Angular community, I have a great time. And a lot of them have wound up on Adventures in Angular. So if you're doing front-end development, you're looking for a way to keep current on the Angular ecosystem, and you want to have a good time listening to fun people talk about great topics related to Angular, then go check out Adventures in Angular at adventuresinangular.com. Yeah, that's, that's a really cool thing. I think I didn't, let me walk through it again, because sure. I didn't quite make the leap on the last part with you. Okay. Because I, I guess my brain was gathering the requirements document of how to create these different cookbooks and different stuff and, and seeing that. So I want to break that down into two parts. So the first part was talking about the observability, meaning... Situational awareness. Si situational. Yeah, situational. Yeah, situational awareness. That's perfect. Because what I was thinking was, it's like when you're down in the trenches, one of the things that's happening is you have the, you need to have the heightened senses, the spidey sense version of situational awareness to be able to react quickly and do, do the things down that level, especially if you're troubleshooting prod. 
right? And you've got to get get things back up. But not knowing that after you get out of, you know, you've you've basically defused that bomb, a nuke is on your on its way to hit you. <laughs> Why did you defuse the bomb for the nuke is just gonna level the entire playing field right after you leave, right? So, yeah. you know, there's the two different directions. And so what I liked what you're saying was that and my pedigree is I was uh, most recently I was a consultant. And so yes, mm-hmm. I would go out and we would spend a focused amount of time trying to make, you know, one aspect better of, of different things. And so you get there and you'd have a, a, a scrum kind of meeting at the beginning inception to try to set things up and set the tone and, and build the backlog. And a lot of post-it notes, again, would, would be used. So I can identify with that 100%. But, uh, but what I'm saying is, is that sometimes there are some great tools out there. One of the people I've, I want to share with you that you might be aware of, if you're not, you know, you should look into them, is a tool called ROPS by IRO. It's mm-hmm. I-A-U-R-O. And I did an episode with them just this last week. And what I admire about them is they have so much of that observability built into it. They they plug into the different places of the DevOps kind of standard CI, CD pipeline, making a change, making a PR request, you know, and doing that kind of stuff. It's as you'd mentioned was if, if it could be as easy as a, as a pull request that has a, a public SSH key to add, and then after that point, it just kind of goes through a lot of the automatic governance if it's not prod, right? Mm-hmm. And that would be great. But the only way to get to that automation was to do the archaeology, observe where the, the touch points are and, and how we can do it. I guess where I'm kind of going with this is that I didn't make the leap of breaking down the monolith into its parts. So so t- let's talk more about that here in the next minute or two or a little bit. Sure. What... What is your experience with that? So, so, so maybe it's just because I'm an old sysadmin, right? I got a gray beard and everything. When, when you when you talk to DevOps and DevOps practitioners or system administrators, and you start talking about how automation and how you you look at your your situational awareness, how your your pipeline or how to get something done is made, right? Where back to the SSH keys or laptop example, right? Now that same narrative, that same conversation, you can take out SSH keys or laptop and mention how you get something into production, right? Because then you start having situational awareness of all the different steps to get a new release of your code, which is most likely your business from dev to production. Okay. Uh, so now, I'm, so now you I'm have that whole, yeah, now you have that whole situational awareness. Okay. Of how, for lack of a better term, Jira ticket of I want thing or I want feature or fixed bug to out the door that gives us real production money. So, so all of a sudden you have the same conversation you're having with SSH keys and laptops with your dev team. And then before you know it, you have a common almost vernacular where you're talking about automation, dealing with the different things. And then you take that extrapolate a little bit farther. So now from Jira ticket to production, now you talk about, okay, so we've done a bunch of different shavings, if you will, of the different applications do automation here and there. Why would we want like this feature built on our monolith when we could turn this into a microservice and have its own pipeline to do the thing. It's it's a natural progression of a conversation because then all of a sudden your monolith app doesn't have that new API or whatever you built into it. You now have a nice little Go app that does the thing. And all of a sudden that Go app has the velocity to make the business changes because you've built up all this automation behind it to be able to make that stuff happen. Do you, do, you, do you see how it kind of all comes together slowly but surely? Yeah, definitely. That makes it clear because I, 
I guess I was thinking about maybe took what you said a little too literally <laughs> of decom decomposing a monolith into cloud native stuff. But I think I understand better after your further explanation, which is well, the, that the observability the, can be pattern can be mostly reused. Exactly. And what is the core tenet of, of a DevOps practitioner? We're supposed to break down walls, right? We are supposed to be able to be cross-trained, if you will, for lack of a better term, across a whole engineering org. Like we're not just a sysadmin typing in on a bash prompt anymore or a PowerShell prompt if, if you're in the Windows world, right? What we are is we become a, a bridge between all the different engineering orgs inside of a business to be able to be successful and leverage the toolings that we have. Like there will be people who all they ever want to do, like I know a buddy of mine who I haven't seen in a very long time, you know how to think about it. All he ever wanted to do was bug fixes. That was his world. Like he loved stability and he wanted to play and un unravel the onion of their application and fix the bugs. He would never care about running something on IBM cloud because I'm work for IBM. I have to say IBM cloud, but he would never care about running that. But he leveraged me as a DevOps engineer to be able to talk to the, the sanity QA people. Granted, at the time there was a different team for QA, but that's not the point. What I'm trying to say is it became a hub. DevOps practitioners, if they're doing their job correctly, they become a hub of information to be able to get the business to get the velocity they need to be successful. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah, it does. My concern though, I have a concern and I want to share it with you and then see if we can figure out. I'm going to give you a huge problem and see if we can solve it. <laughs> so here's what it is. I agree with what you're saying that a lot of times the DevOps people have to, because they take on a lot of disciplines, they do become a hub, a gateway. But in a way, the same way that a gateway can have kind of IP rules and you know, those kind of things, things that block things flowing back and forth. When that hub goes down, that's my main question without getting too into the weeds of this question. How do we replace that functionality and the, you know, all of the different things? And how do we build in some HA on a couple of people knowing how to do a thing? What are you, what are your advice on those type of? questions. It, go, it goes back to camps, right? The culture, automation, measurement, and the most important one, sharing. A good DevOps practitioner shares everything they know. They write the documentation. They write, they update the wikis as soon as they touch them because you know wikis go stale as soon as they, you hit save, right? It's supposed to be a joke. Right. As soon as you drive that wiki off the lot, it's lost $7,000 of your value. Exactly. Exactly. But no joke, like that sharing portion of CAMS is so, or I, CALMS, I guess I didn't say learning, but you get my point, is, is, is sharing. And to your, to your concern of, well, if you become a hub and you're only one DevOps practitioner at a small company, for instance, well, if you get hit by a truck, what happens, right? Well, the whole point is, is if you are, if you, as you don't, a DevOps practitioner should never create a fiefdom, right? It should never hoard knowledge. They should never hoard knowledge. If anything, they should be yelling the knowledge to the executives and or leadership being like, everybody should understand how this all works. I'm just, I'm just the tip of the spear, right? Making this, I've, I've gotten situational awareness again of something that could be a problem. We need to have a conversation to make sure everyone understands how to kick every single application server. I don't know, whatever. It really doesn't matter, right? But mm -hmm. the idea, yeah. go ahead. Well, you, to, to do what you said before, to do the SSH keys, to get a laptop, to deploy an app, whatever exactly. the thing is at hand. Yeah. And I realize that's a, sometimes a huge cultural change, but that's why as a DevOps practitioner, and that's why I'm in the camp also of DevOps isn't tooling. DevOps is a cultural and professional movement of change where, yes, okay, it's a 
it's called developer operations. That's when it first started, right? Because all of a sudden development operations had to come together because they had to learn Git, another joke. Hopefully somebody giggled at that. Yeah, but now it's it's now DevSecOps, right? It's Dev FinOps. It's, it's, it's everybody because the idea is that cloud native and the way for you to get the velocity for your business. And also don't forget, you are a service to the company, right? You If you want a paycheck, you have to do your service to make sure the business is successful. And DevOps practitioners, as a catch-all term is DevOps, right? Has been able to build themselves up to be the, the next generation of, of the hub of the technology stack, right? Of, of your actual business. And what, what company is a software company? Every single company out there right now in general. Like if you think about it, every single company from McDonald's to other company I'm, I'm completely blanking on, but you get my point. Or yeah, you wouldn't company. necessarily think um, a Home Depot, right? Has to oh, do that. Goodness. But they just, you're huge, right? Well, they, they have a massive data center here in Austin. And mm-hmm. I've actually seen them in DevNexus. They have some of the most advanced Java running their backends, but they get the best people on the planet for Java to, to, to run their, their backends, right? And it is wow, insane cool. what they do. It really, truly is. It's not like Google, where Google is up on this big pedestal, right? Where they're doing like all this cool engineering things. But when you start talking about real business and like, well, okay, that was that was unfair. Google is a real business, et cetera, et cetera. But what I'm saying is like down in the proletariat down here where we are, right? Where we, we actually, we don't get to play in the, the research way. We actually have to make some servers run. Mm-hmm. There's this whole, whole world of things that as a DevOps practitioner, we're at a position of privilege and power that if we learn how to use it, we can make our businesses that we represent so successful. So the velocity can take overtake their competition so well because we have the situational awareness. We have the yeah. understanding of automation and all of a sudden things just work. I mean, it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen overnight, but mm-hmm. it's a journey. And as soon as you start that journey and you, yes, you're going to stiff. It's like riding a bike. You're going to fall. You're going to scrape your knee. It does happen. But before you know it, you're, you're riding your bike around the block. And before you know it, you're, you're thinking about doing a nice little trail out in the woods, wherever you are. And before you know it, you're starting to do 25 mile run or right run rides or whatever, right? Like mm-hmm. you get my you get my analogy. But mm-hmm. anyway, sorry, I get I get a little I get a little rambling every occasionally. No, no, you're great. No, it's great. I, I think you and I are both passionate about it. I can sense that <laughs> be, between the two of us that we are passionate for this field and what we like about it is the the learning and the sharing yes. and the growing and the and the, you know like Joey from Friends. The people mm-hmm. and the sharing and the growing and the feeling. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so I, I do agree with a lot of that. And, you know, when you say the bike metaphor, my son, he actually learned how to ride a bike in like an afternoon. I barely even helped him. And it was really funny that like his friend came over and said, hey, let's go ride bikes. And he goes, I don't know how to. And so we, we kind of gave him a little bit of time. And then the next day he was riding the bike like he'd been riding it for months, for years. And he just looked like a, a fish that just jumped in water and was learning how to swim. And it was like, why haven't I been swimming all this time? So <laughs> exactly, exactly. It was really cool. And so some people will take to it. Let's use that analogy and say some people will take to it. And when they find it, it's it's really awesome. That's what happened to me essentially about 15 years ago was I had been an app developer and mm-hmm. then I then I was required to become a full stack developer and kind of also do the backend stuff as well mm-hmm. as the, the app. And so I started to kind of like some of the stuff that was happening on the backend. And it was just, you know, kind of right before the 2006 kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. and, and then getting more interested in, I, I went to a platform company and then been doing DevOps ever since. So, so yeah, it's it's been fun. 
I think that we're getting low on time, but it's been a really wonderful episode getting to know you, JJ, and talking shop with you. We didn't really have a set place to go today with our topic, but it w- I think we did talk into it. And I would say, you know, if we were going to, in retrospect, doing our retrospective here on our episode, I would say that we probably want to talk about like the culture and the observability of DevOps and the importance of those those things. Would you uh, uh, say that that's a good theme for today? That That's a great theme. And it, it's in, in, in situational awareness, right? Like a, a good DevOps practitioner should have situational awareness. Yes, you might spin up Nagios, right? Like every DevOps engineer probably has spun up Nagios at some point in their career. Because and then spun it back down as soon as fast as they can possibly it, do it. Well, after, after it's emailed you like 130 times, but yes. But like, no joke. That's that's sometimes the best thing to start with, right? Where you're just like, do I need to know that the Java process is up, right? Like, is that important? I think it is. So this way, at least you have observability or uh, situational. I really think situational awareness is a better term than observability because observability is a little bit loaded, especially with our friends over at Honeycomb and, and opinions that are out around all that kind of things. But I, I don't want to be loaded on the terms, right? Where hmm. it, it's it's as a DevOps practitioner, there's there are multiple ways to attempt to resolve this, this situation, but it's the OODA loop, right? It's all about the OODA loop where it's observe, hmm. orient, learn? No, something, action. I can never remember well, it's the a D. It's a D for something. Oh, d- 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 uh, it's uh, decide. It's decide. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, observe, orient, decide, action. It's the OODA loop, right? Oh, and, okay. Great. Uh, it's really close to that. It's maybe not 100. And it's one of those things that when you pick up on your career and if you start like really internalizing it, then that situational awareness statements I made earlier start making more sense. Because if you want to run a production environment that makes money for more than just yourself, as a DevOps practitioner, you are responsible to make money for the business. Like, yes, you're not running, you're not writing the app, but any moment that app is down, the company is not making money. And how mm-hmm. does, what, what does the company do for you? They give you money so you can live, right? <laughs> so, right. so, so you need to have situation awareness, and that's why I keep harping on that. And I really wish I'd learned that so much earlier on in my career, and and really internalized it. And I, I felt like that was something I really wanted to bring to your podcast. Okay, I think that's a good point uh, to make fun of it a little bit, but with tongue tongue in cheek, is to say, you know, we used to deploy uphill both ways, <laughs> that's right? True. It's so true. It's um, so true. And it's the kids that are coming in today who are like, oh, I, I want a job. Which one sounds kind of interesting? They might not have gone through the same type of things. And so, but they are also going to invent stuff that were, that will be the sysadmins who are like, oh, no, you got to do it the DevOps way, which is fail until you make it. And then exactly. once you make it, uh, throw that away the next time something else comes along. Yeah. Uh, you know, we'll, they'll find our faults and they'll improve. So yes. that's why children are our future and we have the anthem for that and all that good stuff. I, it sounds like they should be iterating on what we started. Right. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So with that in mind, thank you, JJ, for coming today. We, you know, we'll close there. And let's let's go ahead and go into the our last segment here on the episode, which is picks. Are you building applications with Vue.js? then you need to check out the Views on View podcast. Every week, we bring in a guest panelist from the View community and talk about the interesting things being built with View or the changes coming in its ecosystem. You can find it all at viewsonview.com. So I think my pick for this week was actually finding an interesting API tool, API documentation tool, and it's called Slate. And I'll put some put a link in the show notes. But what it does is it allows you to write really great, it's, it's a great style, it uses frames so that you can keep the context of the documentation and basically puts it all in, in one page for you. 
but allows you to navigate around. So it's more easy to parse by, by reading through kind of like a table of contents that stays persists on the left-hand side. The meat of the stuff is in the middle and then it's get examples on the right so that you can actually kind of put the whole big picture together anywhere you jump to throughout the documentation. It's used for documentation that I use quite a bit with Cloud Foundry, like user the user authorization and, and authentication server. And so I was looking into the details of that and, and, and thought that was really cool. So yeah, that would be my technical pick this week. My other kind of highlight this week has been that my dog who is three-month-old Yorkie, got 10,000 upvotes on Reddit and went Reddit famous because oh. he's so cute. So he's my he's my other pick of the week. And I'll, I'll, I'll leave a link to, to the Reddit and you guys can go and look at that if you want to. He's just being silly on the floor. It's in the Zoomies channel on Reddit where basically, or Zoomies subreddit, I'm going to sound like a grandpa that I don't know how to use Reddit. <laughs> it's on the Zoomies channel. You guys know how to use the channel, don't you? Anyway, <laughs> anyway, I'll put a link for that. What are some of your picks this week, JJ? So I'm going to go completely away from technology for the most part, which was, I'm going to talk about the Stargate franchise. So believe it or not, there's a lot of people out there who know Star Wars. There are a lot of people out there who know Star Trek. And there's people out there, also myself, who absolutely adore Battlestar Galactica. But there's another camp out out there called Stargate. And in the in the quarantine world that we live in, up until very recently, unfortunately, up until very recently, the whole Stargate franchise was on Amazon Prime. Now, if you don't know, there's hundreds of episodes of the whole like franchise from Stargate SG-1 to Atlantis to SGU and the actual movies involved. And mm-hmm. I started watching it as soon as quarantine happened. And I just recently finished Stargate SG-1. This is the second time I've watched the whole series. And I want to say, General Jack O'Neill is a spirit animal of mine in many, many ways. So yes, hopefully, Star- uh, hope- hopefully Stargate nerds will get that. <laughs> well, not having watched the show recently enough, I don't get it. But I, I was a fan when it came out originally. It would come out. People, some people may not know, and this hopefully maybe this will be useful new information for you about Stargate. Stargate was originally on Showtime, and to get a bigger audience, they would play it a week later on syndication on like Fox or something. I did and, not know that. Yeah, and so originally it was a Showtime show, but they were worried nobody would pick it up, and so they kind of like jumped the gun on getting because normally shows route for a few years before they go into syndication, mm-hmm. so they would get kind of like a double hit. So that's why they would make the shows on Showtime, but they would edit it so that it was safe for TV and would fit within an hour. And so, you know, it was always built to syndicate from the beginning. And that's why Richard Dean Anderson got involved was was he knew he wanted to have another hit series and, and he and his team put that together. So... I I really like it. The thing that I don't like about Stargate is that one of my favorites of incarnations of this Stargate universe was so short-lived. Have you seen that yet? Oh, yeah, absolutely. SGU was basically... Okay, so I'm saying this with all love and respect. I, I was a big BSG fan, and then... I still am a big BSG fan. We don't talk about season four. The what's BSG? Then, uh, Battlestar Galactica. Battlestar Galactica. Um, see, yeah, yes. see, I don't know that world. So, oh my goodness. That world. Okay, that's my second pick is BSG, okay. and you should start okay, watching great. that. But the beauty of BSG, well, BSG was amazing. It was episodic, or it was it was a space opera, just like Legends of Galactic Heroes, which is another conversation. That's different. Anyway, SGU had a, a had echoes of BSG inside of it, especially the first season. Because it's it's the, the the fear of the unknown where it's it's survival survival horror. That's what I'm I'm looking for, right? So SGU had such uh. perfect 
survival horror. And unfortunately, to your point, it ended so quickly, which really, really is so sad because the, the story, like it was one of those times that you just wish they put a TV movie together just to wrap up the end of it, just so it can move forward. But I've heard- Yeah, kind of like Firefly was, uh, you know, so short-lived exactly. and then had the movie kind of thing. Exactly. Um, unfortunately though, I, or not unfortunately, but I've heard that they're thinking of doing a reboot of SG-1, like through Amazon or whatever, because- there, that was a whole like agreement that they had with uh, MGM. And if you get deeper into like the ownership and the, the IP law and all that, as a DevOps practitioner and learning how to deal with open source licensing, it's a very natural progression into IP law with TV shows. That's, mm-hmm. that's a joke. That's a joke, by the way. Anyway, long story short. I got um, your sarcasm. We'll see whether or not it, it translates to the audio. I like it. I like it. I will say, though, oh, I completely forgot what I was going to say. So you know that part out. My bad. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, basically, I think you're going on the thing that uh, it's so complex. And that sometimes yes. when DevOps, it's, it's complex to mar- marry all the licenses together and the IPs that it's, it's akin to pulling off, you know, a trick shot kind of thing with a TV exactly. show because, you know, it was probably a never tell me the odds kind of moment that uh, the original show got created. And yep. then because there was it was popular and it was making money they spun out more things, but then it kind of slowly ran out of a little bit of energy as all things do. I mean, even Star Trek ran out of energy and and had to kind of go into stasis for a little while before it came back out with a couple of new series. So I like, I like that drop in. I like that little drop in of stasis there. That was good. That was real good. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, I'm really glad to have met you, uh, JJ. It was, it was a pleasure getting to know you and talking to you today on Adventures in DevOps. I think we'll probably wrap up there and uh, we'll see you guys in the next episode. Goodbye. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.